A horse gallops with his lungs, perseveres with his heart, and wins with his character. Quote by Tessio. I'm Kim Krebs, your host for Equine Body Talks. I've been working for over a decade in the equine industry as a body worker and many years prior to that as a loper for cutting horse operations. With the many horses I've worked with in both of these capacities, it has driven me to want to continually find out the why and the hows of equine biomechanics, health, and performance. To help these athletes achieve their best potential while limiting the wear and tear on their bodies. This podcast is dedicated to opening the conversation around equine wellness diving deeper into the whole body approach for equine performance horses. If you have been in the equine sport performance industry for any amount of time or are an athlete yourself, you will know that soft tissue and joint injuries are very common in our athletes. The athleticism we require of individuals to be competitive in an ever-evolving world of genetics and higher level of sport means that the athletes we have today are, for the most part, required to perform maneuvers at a more intense level than even a few years ago. Often, the veterinary treatment of choice for these performance horses has been joint injections. In today's high-performance sports, regenerative therapies are becoming the new go-to for support when an injury occurs. This is true for both human and equine alike. Regenerative medicine is a branch of translational research in tissue engineering and molecular biology, which deals with the process of replacing, engineering, or regenerating human or animal cell tissues or organs to restore or establish normal function. This field holds the promise of engineering damaged tissues and organs by stimulating the body's own repair mechanisms to functionally heal previously irreparable tissues or organs. This field of medicine has been around since the mid to late 1990s in the human world and is seemingly becoming more popular for the equine field. Today, we will be talking to one of Alberta's top equine veterinarians and find out what regenerative therapies are all about, as well as where the technology is going in our industry. We'll cover PRP, IRAP, and stem cell therapy, as well as touch on shockwave and traditional joint injections. Dr. Ty Corbeil is owner and founder of Core Veterinary Services, based out of central Alberta, and has clients throughout Western Canada. Their focus is equine lameness and soundness. Dr. Corbeil grew up on a ranch in south-central Alberta where his family raised purebred Hereford cattle and American quarter horses. Obtaining his Certificate of Veterinary Medicine from the Western College of Veterinary Medicine, he has also mentored under such leading equine veterinarians as Dr. Dan French. He completed his internship at Idaho Equine Hospital in Nampa, Idaho, before returning to Canada in 2010 to start his private practice, Core Veterinary Services. He not only looks after horses, he is a rider himself, and you can find him riding and roping in his spare time. His main areas of interest are equine lameness, sports medicine, respiratory medicine, and orthopedic joint disease and treatment. 
So as a body worker, working with a vet like Dr. Corbeil is what embodies the team approach. The first time I met him, I was in the midst of a session on a horse, and he came into the barn I was working at for some of the other cases. I was like most body workers, uncertain of how we will be received by other professionals, so I smiled and introduced myself, prepared for a half-hearted high. Only he walked right over to the stall I was in, shook my hand, said how glad he was to finally meet me, and looked forward to collaborating on cases. So when I say he is very down-to-earth, I really mean it. On top of that, I've come to learn how he has a super keen eye for equine movement and is always striving to find the answers, no matter how simple or complex a case might be. So I was thrilled to finally be able to get him on the podcast in the midst of his very busy schedule. So thanks so much again, Dr. Kerbiel, for taking the time today to talk with us. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast because it seems like every other barn that I go to these days, when they fill out the intake forms for their horses, the veterinarian they refer to is you. So <laughs> you're definitely making a name for yourself in the in the Alberta industry here. Perfect. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, no, we appreciate it. Um, so the first thing I'd like to start off with is if you could tell us a little bit about Corvette and your desire to start an equine-related practice. Sure. Um, so when I came back to uh, Canada, I guess it was 2010, uh, I finished my internship, you know, I started working, I really just kind of had a desire, you know, to, to brand my practice more. I worked, and like, I wanted to say, okay, this is, you know, Ty Corbin, this is my skill set, and uh, you know, this is the way we do things, kind of offer elite-level service, and, and Corvette kind of was the result of, what came out of that, uh, you know, the equine practice side of things, you know, I really enjoy the, the lameness and the sports medicine side of things, uh, the investigation it takes, you know, almost like a detective to say, okay, where is this for a horse hurting? And, uh, then you'll really enjoy seeing those horses go on to, to, uh, reach their full genetic potential and, and hopefully the owner can enjoy them to their fullest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, it. Is the lameness end of things is so tricky. I don't know quite how you guys do it. <laughs> um, it's definitely difficult. Yeah. Sometimes it's easy. <laughs> For sure. And you are primarily mobile, is that right? Or do you do have a, a clinic as well? Right. So we actually have both. Uh, initially, when we first started, uh, you know, let's say for the first four or five years, roughly, you know, we were strictly just mobile. So we would go to barns and and uh, your, your farms and, and work on horses. It's not bad when you can go somewhere and work on you know, a large group of horses, but when you get running around from one place to one place, when the busy show season, people are saying, okay, can you come look at my horse? And eventually we needed a, a spot so they could hold us. We do have a, a clinic now. Uh, maybe don't operate as a typical clinic. We don't always have uh, you know horses coming into the clinic every day. Um, we'll still go to a lot of barns and, and uh Typically Tuesdays we're gone, you know, the rest of the week it, it kind of depends. We might be in clinic um, half the day and the other clinic we might be gone. Uh, in case, let's say Friday, so like Monday we were in the clinic in the morning. And then, or sorry, out of the clinic in the morning, kind of to mid-afternoon. And then we had a bunch of horses come out of Saskatchewan and we were here until about 8 or 9 uh, working on horses. Then Tuesday we were out of the clinic. Wednesday 
uh, in clinic, and then Thursday kind of half days, and yesterday in clinic all day again. So right. yesterday is Thursday. Yeah, I forget what day it is. But <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> you so guys are. And, you know, we just have a you know, spot where you can trot some horses outside on some pavement uh, or breezeway on the cement. Um, inside, we'll trot them on some polylass. So um, kind of different footing, you know, as, as far as evaluating some of those lanes is nice. And, you know, we can keep some horse if need be overnight or longer. Yeah. Case, but most of our case I would see in hospital kind of are, are you know, all in the lanes work up and then fall out. But we definitely you know, have some. We have one here right now with some suspensory issues that stay in a little while. So we can do some regenerative therapies and then fall out some shockwave and, and the owner doesn't, doesn't have to continue to bring it back. Right. Yeah. No, you guys are, have crazy hours. That's for sure. I know I was talking with clients of mine the other day and yeah, I think you were there till all hours of the evening kind of before you then had to drive home. So, yes. (laughs) So can you take us through when you first come into a case and you do your full assessment on the horses, um, their movement, what does it look like in terms of being able to, um, look at diagnosing a lameness or soundness issue? What tools do you use to help with that? Okay. Yeah. So when we, and I'll give you a run through what we typically do for our lanes exams. So I always tell my with students that are with us and learn, you know, the first thing is to just kind of stand back and have a look at the horse and, and maybe just tell me what you see is, is what I always tell them. So, you know, that maybe starts right when you're, you know, go to a barn and the horse is in a stall, you know, evaluate them in the stall, you know, what are they doing? How are they standing? If they're hauling to you at the clinic, you know, how do they get off the trailer? You know, which leg do they put down and, and take the weight, you know, when they're getting down off the trailer onto, um, obviously look at, confirmation, you know, muscle atrophy and that sort of thing. We'll kind of stand back and have a look, you know, how well are they shod, where their feet look like, how are they wearing that, you know, scars, lumps, bumps, mm-hmm. fusion. So we kind of stand back and have a listen to that, or look at that. And then, you know, certainly I think the key portion for me is always to hear what the trainer or, or rider or owner has to say, you know, what their concerns are so we can make sure that those are addressed, you know. Um, and then we do uh, move in. I'd like to do a full static exam I call it or standing exam so we kind of go, we'll go through and, and palpate those horses and uh, put our hands on them and, and uh, compare side to side and, and normal to what we think might be a little bit abnormal for that horse and then uh, finally stand back and, and kind of watch that horse move like I mentioned earlier on I'd like to see them on different surfaces I think is key if, if available sometimes it's not but that's nice having them at the clinic yeah. or a spot where we can watch them on different surfaces we'll watch them walk Watch them cross over, you know, trot lunge, and you know, hard ground, soft ground, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and tools, obviously, just our you know, hands, eyes, ears. Initially, when we're feeling them and seeing them, and you know, watch them trot. Sometimes on the breezeway, we can hear what legs hitting harder versus the other one. You know, mm-hmm. if it's a cement or a or pavement uh, surface. You know, sort of hoof testers will definitely you know for the podiatry cases. We'll definitely use those for pressure points or sensitivity points. Gives us a little bit of indication what's going on. Sometimes mm-hmm. a board test, so you know, we can put stress on a on a collateral ligament or a, a heel structure. You know, we can stress on those areas and then trot the horse off and say, okay, is this where you hurt? And, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes those horses will respond differently. And then obviously, to get more in depth into some of those cases, we'll use different imaging modalities like ultrasound, you know, X-ray or it's a more of a performance or an issue, sports medicine, you know, when you look at airway scopes or gastroscopes, or, or some cases we certainly will need to maybe send for an MRI or a bone scan or something like that, but, you know, the large majority of cases we can, can try and figure out without. Right, yeah. Lots of tools, that's uh, <laughs> that's awesome. But the I think the hardest thing, 
and even um, from my perspective, trying to watch a horse move, it's really hard, especially if you have one that's potentially obvious in um, a certain specific limb, let's say, that trying to trying to almost negate that so that you can then watch the horse sort of as a whole, like what, what would you do to help? Do you have a method um, when you're doing a, a movement evaluation that helps you stay organized? I know I've heard some people say they start at the top of the hip and then they move down to the feet. Um, others go from the feet up. Like what, what kind of things do you do in terms of trying to train your eye? Right. Uh, so I guess to stay organized, I always start on the last, just that's just what I do. I'll kind of always have from the from the get-go. So like somebody can start on the foot and then and down. And I guess from, from training my eye, I think I would start the same thing. I try to start on the left. And so when I'm looking at the horse, I'll try and look at the left side first. You know, and and mm-hmm. typically I always start. And then I'm, so I, I do everything to the left. So when I'm looking at the horse, I start at the left. And then when I palpate the horse, I start at left front run down the left side, go around, you know, run up the right side to an end with the right front. I try and do that when I stand back and evaluate it and then when I palpate it. And then when I say I do everything to the left, when I have my technicians or my students are handling the horse, they do everything to the left first. So if I lunge a horse, they always take to the left first. If I get a crossover, it's the left first. So then when I go back, sometimes you might look at three, four, five, six, seven, eight horses in a row. I try and make notes between those. Um, but sometimes you might look at two or three or four without making notes and then you can kind of picture back and think okay here's the horse in my mind okay i know it was sore on the first lunge and then you don't have to think okay was it left or right you know okay they lunged. i remember it was the first, first time they lunged so it was to the left you know, right was, you know, first you know leg you palpated was was the suspension was thicker or more reactive okay that was the left one so just kind of take some of that subjectivity out of it and then i think it also helps to stay organized so maybe you don't miss anything so if you really get in a routine which i think branding's key if you do the same thing every time and don't kind of skip over something, you're much less likely to, to miss something on some of those examinations if you're doing the same thing on every course. Right. And whether that be, like you said early on, one that's maybe more obvious, you know, sometimes we'll see an obvious one and I'll think, oh, this is a, you know, going to be a rainbow on horse, a sick pastor, <laughs> and then it, uh, and one the other day, I'm like, oh, I, uh, that was totally a red herring. It wasn't, right. <laughs> you know, might have had some pastor issues there, but that's not the leg it was laying on. So I think if you still get in the habit sometimes, and I know it's hard when we're all busy and top of person inherently wants to take shortcuts, but if you try and make yourself not, then, uh, you won't end up missing those, those cases as, as easily. Right. That's a really good point. And so with a variety of different disciplines that you work with, what are the differences you see among them when it comes to sports-related injuries? Uh, and this is a huge question, I know, so we can break it down any way you want. But um, And then is there specific treatments that you sort of see more in different disciplines? Or maybe there aren't any differences and it's sort of similar across the board? Right, okay. No, it's a really good question. I would say there definitely is differences kind of amongst the disciplines, you know, treatments and injury-wise. Um, you know, as you know, I guess our, our primary uh, patients are the Western Forms horses, you know, the rodeo horses, the cutters, the rainers, uh, you know, and Western Pleasure. And so I would say, you know, in each one of those disciplines, um, there's different injuries we see more commonly because we're putting, you know, as a training and competitions, putting different stresses on those mm-hmm. and uh, also different age groups in those, those horses, you know, uh, are cutters and the rangers versus a lot of rodeo horses you know which may be more mature versus three four five year olds you know cutting rain horse two three four five uh you know we might see 
sorority horses are more common. You've got six to 16, 18-year-old horses, you know, so they... Good point, yeah. Both, yeah, both those horses could have hawk pain, but they're they're probably a different, um, you know, physiological pathway to get there. So the, the reining horse or cutting horse, you might x-ray the hawks, and now even though they, they have hawk issues, they may look pristine on x-rays, but they can still have some incentivitis and pain there, where the rody horse, you might x-ray them, you're 15, 16, you're going to expect to see some bone spurs and some osteoarthritis in those, those horses. Right. Or if it's, uh, you know, we have some warm blood clients uh, as well, you know, winter jumpers and dressage, you know, we might see more suspensory issues in the dressage. You can see those in a cutting horse, but the, the type of suspensory injury may be different because typically they're going to be free St. George dressage horses are going to be older and have a different, um, strain or injury to that suspensory versus, um, you know, the type of suspensory injury you may see in a, in a younger horse. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's a really good point in terms of the age difference as well. Yeah. Um, and so then as a body worker, when I'm working on a horse or get called in, I have found in, if I have a horse that is consistently sore, um, specifically, you know, in their back lumbar area uh, in the gluteal soreness, to me, that's something that, you know, is a red flag. And I will immediately discuss with the owner about wanting to make sure that they call in, um, you know, you as the veterinarian and have that horse gone over more thoroughly because oftentimes it is an indicator that there could be something um, more internal going on, something specifically with the joints. Is there anything else that you would try to indicate to other body workers that, I mean, obviously being a team member and, and always having that relationship with the veterinarians is key. Um, but is there something specific that you would say, Hey, if you ever come across a horse like this, please make sure and refer it. Right. No, it's a, uh, and not always maybe a straightforward question on those ones, but yeah, you know, like you had did commented on some of those, you know, I think, um, you know, um, you know, when to maybe get a veteran involved in some of those ones, and maybe to be the degree of soreness, you know, so some that come out and say, okay, you know, I've seen this horse before, you know, as a body worker, I've worked on it, and all of a sudden, the horse has been sore, and all of a sudden, that's changed drastically, or, or it's a totally different soreness, it's quite acute, and, you know, the severity of that, so, you know, are they still weight-bearing, or, you know, quite lame, is it lame at a, at a walk or trot, uh, so the severity of that, and then maybe the duration too. You think, okay, let's give that a day or two. You know, it's a bruise, it's an abscess. You know, simply a muscle strain that's going to come out. And if they're not, you know, improving significantly over a short period of time, then certainly, you know, uh, probably a case to get a, a veterinarian involved in, and maybe just do some imaging and say, okay, well, yes, we're still on the right track, and and keep on doing what we're we're doing. Um, in other cases, maybe that are, aren't maybe quite as drastically sore, but maybe, you know, your treatments as a body worker aren't as effective as they used to be, or, you know, you think, okay, I work on this horse last week, and normally we'd be getting like a month out of that treatment, and now we're getting, you know, three or four days or a week out of it. So that frequency of reoccurrence of soreness maybe, you know, um, a time to say, okay, we, we, we're going to continue doing what we're doing, but we maybe need, you know, some some help and assistance from another team member to try and help our, our uh, treatments get back to, to the duration that we had previously. Mm-hmm. I think like you first mentioned there too, it is going to be part of a good team. I always compare what we're doing to the human, you know, side of things and that our equine athletes, the human athletes, you know, the Olympians and the high level athletes. And I don't think any of those athletes when they're at that level of competition are just seeing one individually they're not going to just go see their orthopedic doctor you know they're going to see their massage therapist they're going to see their podiatrist they're going to see their nutritionist you know they're going to see their chiropractor and it really is a team 
you know, efforts. And I think that that's key for anyone to remember too. And then being in a good working relationship with that, if you get it to a point where some people aren't as willing to, uh, to be on a, on a team, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because I think it really is key to get these horses to their full potentials to have that, that network of, of, uh, of individuals working together, you know, for the common goal. Yeah. Including farriers and everything else. Yeah, exactly. And trainers and the owners and everybody that's totally. going to have, have hands on on that horse. Yes. It, Makes a huge difference. I mean, there's always that magic pill people are trying to look for, even for themselves as humans, to you know be able to take the weight off quick, or that's you know one quick treatment and hawks are good. We won't have to address those again for another year. Um, but I think people just really need to realize that, like you said, it's it's not a one hit wonder. Everything does require multifacets if you're wanting to compete um, at a specific level as an athlete. So. Yeah. Um, so as we start getting into some of the treatment options that are available through you guys, one of the things I'd like to address too is that people have said to me in the past, and maybe this is because I come from a cutting horse background, um, and so you know, joint injections to me are not a scary thing. It's something that you know we don't take lightly, but we definitely have seen a fair bit of because we are working with those younger horses. Um, but what would you say to people that indicate, you know, they're wanting to hold off on joint injections because their perception is that every time or if you go into that joint, even if it's one time, that you're doing irreparable damage to it? Is there something that, you know, they're wanting to then hold off and wait till the horse, quote, gets older? Yeah, no, and I think that that's kind of a, a very good question when sometimes we'll will uh, differ on that, you know, with some body workers and, and team members and stuff like that as well, because like you said, some people aren't as familiar with uh, you know, joint injections. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate of, okay, if we don't have to inject a horse, great, you know, let's stay out, of the, stay out of the joint. But that said, we do inject, you know, a lot of horses um, because they, they simply need it. And I think the key factor with that is when we talk about a joint injection, they're not all created equal. You know, they're not the same, you know, what I put in versus what other veterinarian puts in is is not necessarily the same for a traditional injection for a regenerative injection uh necessarily and that each horse and each patient you know really needs to kind of kind of come up with on an individual basis the specific needs of that horse and that the specific needs of that horse really depends on you know age discipline you know what we're using them for type of injury you know and, and what we're specifically treating and the, and the goal of of, uh, of that treatment. So if we don't have to inject a horse, perfect, we don't, but the, a lot of horses we do, um, and the ones that we do need to inject for, you know, simply, you know, sometimes a younger horse, like we talked about, they may both have hawk pain, a, a younger one versus a more seasoned horse. Those seasoned horses may have obvious, you know, osteoarthritis in the hawk. So we may have some clients that come in and say, okay, the hawk's x-ray good, you know, so why do we need to necessarily inject them and it, it does help some horses that can still be painful and so some of these horses that at younger age are in training and they simply have a synovitis so all that means is that they have inflammation within the joints joint structures the synovium which is the lining of the joint um, can be inflamed and yet radiographically there's no bone spurs you don't see narrowing of the joint you know through all sound we may not necessarily see cartilage lesions or, or uh, grooves or damage to the cartilage but there's inflammation there from, from training same thing as you know, me or you, if we you know, go to the gym every day, we you know, get a specific repetitive um, um, activity, we may get some inflammation in our shoulders and we're consistently working our shoulders. And so that inflammation in the joint, 
is not good for the joint. And so we can say, hey, we don't want to inject joints. Joint injections are bad. But that inflammation that remains or that's created in the joint is, you know, potentially worse than just leaving that. So that inflammation mm-hmm. in the joint creates an abnormal environment within the joint. And so what that means is that the, the fluid, you know, the lubricant within the joint, the synovial fluid isn't, isn't doing its job. It's much thinner, so it's not lubricating the job properly. And the joint is, in, in essence, you know, a little bit angry and so that chronic inflammation within the joint certainly can predispose us to to uh, future arthritis cartilage wear because it's not lubricated properly and so that's our goal with injecting some of those those sources is to get rid of that uh, joint inflammation um and that angry joint environment create a more normal joint environment so that we can continue to have the horse in work and the horse is happy but also so that that joint's healthy so that as we're working it, it's lubricated properly not predisposing it to to arts, right? You know, to arthritis or future damage. Right. And I guess I would would also say that you know people I get the question a lot is okay. You know, once we start injecting, do we have to continue to inject? And again, yeah. I think that's a big misdemeanor. In that again, it depends on the case and the individual horse. And so, in a young horse, for instance, that simply has synovitis because it's in training and and being worked a little bit. It's not, and I'm not talking about overwork. I'm just saying, you know talking about horses that are in you know some of the Industries, whether it's a thoroughbred or a range horse or a, you know, a maturity horse or a cutting horse, you know, those horses have a, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, have a specific window in their career where they can, you know, compete for for uh, you know, more money and more incentives, and that's the, the nature of the business. And so we're not mm-hmm. necessarily hard on those horses, but we do have expectations of them to be trained in a specific period of time um, yeah. for those horses. And so with that, with that. Uh, training there is going to be some, some information about right uh, which which is great in the joint so we can, can treat some of those joints um kind of lost my train of thought there a little bit but uh can treat some of those joints and get rid of that inflammation create create a, a healthy uh joint and environment and in those young horses just because we inject, needed to inject them once and maybe that horse got some inflammation in the cough and joint we might need to treat that get rid of the inflammation create that healthier joint environment so we can continue to train it's not predisposed to future arthritis and then we may never have to treat that again, you know, just as the horse matures structurally, uh, develops more muscle and learns how to use itself more appropriately, that inflammation may not come back, so we don't necessarily have to do that. Yeah. And then on the other hand, there is some horses, more mature horses, um, potentially, and sometimes there's a young horse that has a, a specific injury that does have some more joint damage, you know, whether that was from a more significant injury or maybe a joint that wasn't maintained previously, potentially do have some carnage where they do have some bone spurs, um, you know, in that uh, in that joint. And those horses, they may need to be injected. And, and just because we inject them, that doesn't mean we have to re-inject them. But over time, potentially, depending on what product we use, because there is that cartilage where those bone spurs or that arthritis, we may have to re-inject that horse to keep them at the same competitive level they're at. We can sometimes, you know, save itself. St. George dressage horse, we may need to, the horse may need to have a, a cob and joint injected. It's a mature horse, and, and just because we inject it doesn't mean we have to inject it again, but because the, sometimes the age of that horse, the maturity, the wear and tear on the joint, we may need to continue intermittently to inject that horse within reason um, to keep it at the level we're at, or maybe we could drop it down and it would be you know more of a training horse or something like that in, uh, in a later date without injecting it. A lot of times to keep them at the competitive level they're at, just again like the human athletes, so they can be as competitive. We may need to treat that joint again. Yeah, and I think as a from a body worker's perspective, one of the things that um, I often talk about people or to owners about is the fact that 
you know, if a horse is feeling the pain, um, whether it's through joint injection, soft tissue damage, whatever it might be, but they're going to cause a compensation pattern. And if that, you know, continues and if you don't deal with the root cause of that pain, um, you know, that, that pattern is going to become more ingrained and now you're going to develop further issues by, by simply not having initially addressed, um, something when it could have been, you know, potentially less significant. Um, and, and posture is another big thing too, is, you know, being able to look at a horse, how is it using itself, uh, from a, you know, in terms of its muscles and then being able to support those joints as well. Um, and so as a body worker, I think our job really is to look at that soft tissue and, and try and determine how we can then best support by giving the owners potentially exercise therapy work. Um, maybe it's a, a horse that needs to have, uh, multiple sessions from bodywork um, in you know quick succession to help retrain the body and change the way that um, it utilizes itself so that it, it does get rid of the the pain cycle because that's um, not something you know just by leaving it because you don't want to inject it it's not necessarily going to help the horse you know you you may think that you're you're delaying an issue with um, you know, going into the joint, but in fact, it could be causing you 10 times more issues down the road. So. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on, on all those, those points, you know, and then like I said, it was a good point about the compensation. You know, I think a healthy horse, has the better joints feel, they're going to use themselves more correctly, so potentially make them less prone to some other soft tissue injuries, you know, not compensate, like you said, as far as building muscles more correctly and, and, uh, and whatnot. So I don't think those are all very good points. Yeah. So if you do have to do um, a joint injection, like a traditional joint injection, what would that entail? What do you use for those in- injections? And um, can you just take us through for those that aren't familiar with them? Okay, yeah, sure. So a traditional injection typically would be uh, more of a anti-inflammatory, you know, steroid-based injection, and typically set on the joint with a, HA, which is a, a hyaluronic acid uh, type product, like a synovial fluid type product. So most of a traditional injections, that's what would that that would, would entail. And so we um, talk about a steroid. People say, "Oh, it's a cortisone shot." It's not specifically cortisone, cortisone, but you know, like some sort of steroid. And there is um, a variety of steroids we can use, whether that's you know, um, like a cortisone or like a Kenlog or Transilone, Celestone, Predef, Dex, Depamedrol. Right. Okay. Good. And, and I guess just to touch base on those 
traditional injections again is is that there's different concentrations so again again what what i use versus you know someone else's vat on a traditional injection maybe a different type of steroid maybe a different concentration of steroid maybe a different volume of steroid maybe a different uh, uh brand or or quality of ha so just because you had your coffin of course, coffin joint injection, I had mine, another person had theirs. They might all three have had something different from a traditional injection standpoint in those those joints. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Very good point. So now, though, we're getting into regenerative therapies. Um, what was it that first made you want to consider them for your practice? Yeah, it, uh, so going back to those traditional injections, you know, we like I mentioned, they are typically steroid-based, which is nothing wrong with, but it is nice having the option to say, okay, well, having a more natural, you know, if you will, um, product that, uh, you know, comes typically from the horse's body or doesn't necessarily have to, but it's a more natural product with no steroid. And it's one thing about regenerative therapies, I think about, you know, something more natural, something from typically from the horse's body and using their own body, you know, uh, to heal. And I also think about then repairing or hopefully uh, repairing the, the injury depending on again the, the specific injury itself so mm-hmm. um, you know when I think about those regenerative uh, therapies you know I'm, our goal typically is with those ones if it's more acute injury more meaning one that's just kind of happened I'll say well, you know we're really trying to help that disease and healing proper not the disease process the healing process along you know preserve the function of the ligament or its tendon or the bone um, you know and, and try and get that that structure healed to as close as possible to the original uh, form, you know, so there's less scar tissue in it mm-hmm. is really our, one of our main goals with that regenerative therapy. So, you know, if we can get less scar tissue, we're probably going to have a stronger heel, potentially, you know, more uh, pliable, elastic uh, heel, meaning that, you know, this scar tissue typically is less um, forgiving, you know, uh, less stretchable and, and may predispose us to, you know, future re-injury or maybe potentially not as, as functionally sound if there's a lot of scar tissue in that area. So when I think about yeah. um, regenerative therapies, that's kind of what I, what I think of. They can also be used a little more frequently because potentially we're not worried about, you know, any effects on cartilage or, um, you know, synovium or anything like that, where some of the traditional injections, you know, and, and to step back a little bit and talk about those a little bit again is, you know, we use those different variety of steroids in some of those traditional injections depending on the horse, depending on the age, depending on the use, and depending on the injury, you might say, okay, let's just use a little bit of celestone, a little bit of Kellogg, which are anti-inflammatory and potent, but not nearly as potent or and potentially hard on the cartilages, you know, maybe like a Depomedrol at a higher dose or something like that. Right. Okay. And so with regenerative therapies, um, by looking on your website, um, one of the, we'll go through each one here just so people have an idea what they are, but can you first maybe tell us about, um, IRAP? Sure. Uh, so IRAP is just, uh, uh, an acronym, a fancy, uh, acronym for interleukin receptor antagonistic protein. Um, so it, it basically is a, is a protein that the body makes themselves, you know, from the, the white blood cells that, um, and then, I guess maybe I'll just take a step back and explain yeah. uh, inflammation within the joints. So when we talk about inflammation within the body, um, I always think about it that it's it's kind of a cascade or a pathway. So if you think about inflammation starting, so there's an injury, there's inflammation in the joint, we're training the horse to get start to get some wear and tear in the joint or tweak the joint a little bit and we get inflammation. So if you think about it, inflammation as a hallway with a bunch of doors in it, for that, in the beginning of the, 
the hallway. There's no information at the end of the hallway. That's full-blown information. So to get down the hallway, if there's a bunch of doors, you have to open all those doors to get there. And so if you think about that, then you need keys to open all those doors down. And there's basically proteins in the body, receptors, and mm-hmm. uh, and things that would, you can say essentially are keys to open those doors in that pathway. So to get down the, that, that hallway to that information, those doors have to be open. So if we can block one of those doors, you know, close it or take away the key, it's less likely that the inflammation is going to develop as far uh, along or, you know, reach the, the full inflammatory goal. So the, the goal of IRAP then is basically it's an antagonistic protein. So we um, um, think about inflammation. Uh, the interleukin receptor 1 is an inflammatory pro- protein that stimulates significant inflammation and pain within the body and tissue destruction. So if we can block that protein and, and bind it up, then we're not going to get all the way down the pathway. You know, we're going to get most doors to, to get as much inflammation in the body. So IRAP is an antagonist to that inflammatory protein, that interleukin one molecule that the body produces on its own. So with IRAP, the, the injection, the therapy that we have, what we do is we prep the horse neck sterile, so we scrub it up just like we would a joint. And I guess we haven't talked about that. So with any injection, you know, the let's tell people, you know, there's pros and cons. The pros are we get rid of the inflammation and uh, you know, hopefully help the horse, you know, feel better and, and increase their longevity. The downsides, obviously, there's a cost to anything we do, so you know, there's a financial cost to it. Um, low grade risk of infection anytime we go in a joint, which can be mm-hmm. serious, you know, so we don't take those lightly or a flare or something like that too. So yeah. um, to go back to Yeah, that's a great that analogy too. Oh yeah, no, it made perfect sense. It really clarified actually. That was awesome. Um, and so then the next would be PRP. Right. So uh, PRP is platelet-rich plasma. Um, again, uh, a, thera- a product we takes right from your ho- right from your horse. Uh, so we do the same thing. We prep the jugular up. We pull some blood. This one takes about you know fifteen twenty minutes, and we can. Uh, um, inject it back into the joint of your horse, so it's quite quick, typically. Okay. Um, platelets, if you think about the horse's blood, um, or the, the portion of the blood that's, you know, if you cut yourself, the body's going to start to accumulate at that, that injury site, and, 
and um, uh, I calculated at the injury injury site, and then those those uh, platelets will start to release uh, chemical meteors and track human factors. So I was thinking about the platelets as like little bags of chemical meteors, if you will, or you know, little bags of, of healing factors, essentially. And so what we're doing with the platelet-rich plasma is concentrating those platelets. So we think about blood, we'll think about you know, red blood cell component, the plasma, which is a liquid compo- component. And when I said red blood cells, cellular components, so white blood cells, red blood cells, the, the liquid component, and then the platelets are basically what makes up blood. So mm-hmm. when we pull the blood, we're spinning it in a special centrifuge, concentrating those that platelet component and then sucking that off and then putting that back into a, a joint sometimes you know if we have a horse with car- cartilage lesion or maybe sometimes post-surgery if we've had a you know to a horse with an arthroscopy or something like that where they've had to go into the joint and and, uh, and do some work or we also use it heavily in tendon and ligament injuries you know superficial flexor tendon or deep flexor tendon or suspensory injury um, we use that a lot and so basically we're putting those healing factors into the, the inside of the injury and then they're releasing and saying to the body, okay, we need more healing factors into these these areas. Okay. And, and some of those structures we're putting them into, like the ligaments or tendons, they have blood flow in, in them, but I always tell people they're almost like a rope, you know, so there's, if they're tight and strong like that, there's not, they don't have near the blood flow that skin or muscle would, you know, so that to get those stimulating factors in there, they're coming to a low grade degree, but when we can put a high concentration of concentration of them in there is going to help the, that uh, vascular development the anti-inflammatory effect with it and then definitely the healing factor and we're really just again telling the body using what the body has their own healing factors to try and upgrade with uh, uh, upgrade the healing factors within that site from the body's own factors right so with um, the difference between the two then in terms of when you would use them, the IRAP more often times would be into a joint and the PRP more often into soft tissue such as suspensory or um, did I have that wrong? No, I would definitely agree with that. Both can be used both in the joint or out of the joint. You know, for using IRAP out of the joint, we're really looking for, you know, to get that use that anti-inflammatory effect without inhibiting healing initially mm-hmm. you know but i would say much more often we use an irap in the joint and we will use prp in the joint as well but i would say we typically use it outside the joint uh, more often certainly right okay no that's that's cool good clarification because i think that's often something um that gets confused as irap and prp and sometimes people think of it in almost entertain interchangeably um right. but knowing that you know the difference in terms of what it is in the blood that you're drawing out so that's good um, and what about stem cell therapy? That's another form of regenerative therapies. Yeah, you bet. So, um, so again, just um, good to recognize that IRAP is different than PRP. PRP and IRAP are not stem cells. Stem cells are different different from that. So, so we're talking about stem cells. Um, we're really talking about um, cells that can transform or, or uh, develop into different types of cells. Uh, they're capable of renewal, um, you know, and... and uh, yeah, I guess capable of renewal. Mm-hmm. They, uh, there's different sources then about stem cells. And when we think about uh, stem cells, we'll talk about uh, um, you know bone marrow derived stem cells. So stem cells where we would take them from the sternum, you know, uh, kind of right between the front legs, just behind, you know, or uh, the side of the pelvis. And so those would be like a bone marrow uh, derived stem cell. Okay. They would. Uh, those ones could be. Um, 
concentrate or spun, uh, processed and put right back in the horse or sign. Or a lot of times we will send those ones off U.S. Uh, to send them to U.S. Um, to a lab to be cultured and, and grown so that we get more numbers and then they would send it back and, and we can inject those those in. And a lot of times they would hold up uh, some of those cells too. So if we need more in the future, they would have a, a source of those stem cells for us. So, okay. so stem cells can come from bone. Um, they also come from uh, fetal tissue, so like umbilical cords or uh, amniotic fluid. Um, Renola is one where you, you know you get get a chip in and it comes from uh, full amniotic fluid or pulp, you know, in, in the teeth. You know, uh, oh. uh, there's pulp site uh, um, stem cells, and there's a few other ones, you know, synovium, periosin, those sorts of things that have, would have uh, stem cells. But those are kind of three ones: bone, fetal tissue, and dental pulp would be the, the three major sites for, for collecting stem cells. Um, our goals with those uh, products is to again inject them into the site. Um, can be used uh, both again in the within the joint um, and on the injury, and not one that we typically just say, "Oh, this source might need a little sore in his hocks, a little sore in the cog joint." We're going to put stem cells in there. You could, but it would be typically a more significant injury into those um, if we were using something like that, um, or it can go into the again soft tissue, you know, tendons, ligaments, you know, muscle, um, the thesis where a tendon ligament starts at the bone. Mm-hmm. Um, and our goal with those is that we inject them in and that those cells are, are going to kind of act like a framework and stimulate other um, stem cells within the body to attract to that site. And then those cells, the ones that they attract that site, will then go on to develop to create uh, more normal, a normal, a norm, more normal uh, healing and uh and potentially less scar tissue and potentially a stronger heel than um, before. Is it going to be quicker? You know, potentially, but not always. Uh, but we're really looking for that stronger heel again with less scar tissue um, in that site. So we can put some of the stem cells that can develop into, um, you know, say it's a, a ligament, if the a stem cell in there that can develop into ligamentous tissue in there that can, attract, that can attract other stem cells to the site that then can go on to develop into the suspensory ligament, for instance, mm-hmm. then that may help that suspensory heal and become um, um, heal with less scar tissue. So it's going to be stronger in, in the end. Right. You know, and he'll, he'll, he'll uh, have a better heal. Yeah, exactly, which is more optimal, for sure, less scarring. <laughs> Um, so with these types of treatments, it's obviously, as you discussed, you pull the blood or you will, um, harvest the stem cells from, from the horse itself so that it's their own tissue. Um, but I have heard of people utilizing donor horses for either any of them for the blood work or for the stem cells. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Have you done any of that work? Uh, Is it something that then you'd have to think twice about because it's again, not the, the recipient horse's own um, um, blood or, or stem cell that would that cause any damage or harm to the horse itself? Right. That's a, a good question. So I think a, a, a little bit about some of those with like a, a blood transfusion for a, for a person. So if you're not using the horse's own cells, so like a, uh, they're taking the blood or their stem cells from their from their their own body, which would be like an autologous um, product, meaning from their own body. Then you do run the risk of of the the recipient's body uh, rejecting it. You know, essentially similar to like say you have a liver transplant or a kidney transplant. Yeah. Your body saying, "Hey, these are abnormal cells. We don't know what these proteins are. A little different than what's in our own body. Right. Let's get angry and react to these or, or, or uh, 
reject them, you know, essentially. So, you know, yes, that there's there's certain proteins, you know, say with the platelet plasma thing that that I, I typically use from the same horse or always typically do, mm-hmm. um, you know, just so that we have less potential reaction to that. Mm-hmm. But that said, you can use, there is products where you can use allergenic um, products, meaning um, they come from a different uh, patient, you know, typically a matching donor, some of people, but with horses, there's commercial products like Renova or, you know, which is a, would be like a amniotic fluid based stem cell type um, product. You know, they're commercially available, uh, crowd preserved typically, you know, so you can, can use them horse side and have those, those available. And we haven't, um, I didn't mention that with the, some of these products. So like PRP, you can do horse side. So you bring a horse to me today, you can do the PRP, pull it, process it, inject it. The IRAP, uh, typically we need, I didn't mention that, I guess we did do need to incubate that for 24 hours. So yeah. that one, um, we would need to see your horse and then come back and see it or have you bring it back potentially. But then we do have those, once we have those ones froze, the IRAP, we don't need to do that every time. Just, mm-hmm. It's kind of nice. And then when we talk about stem cells, depending on where we get them from, um, I don't know that I mentioned fat either. So I talked about pulp, oh, uh, bone it. marrow, or uh, um, amniotic fluid. So another spot, big spot of stem cells, which I think negated to uh, mention, was, was adipose tissue, so fat tissue. Mm-hmm. You know, typically we take that from the tail head and uh, be able to concentrate those in and put, put them back in the body. And so when we talk about stem cells, the adipose-derived ones, we typically could do same day. So pull up on the motor horse's tail head process and inject that into the horse you know uh, same day you know within the same appointment and you can do that with a bull barrel uh, drive one too if you were to spin it process it um you know a little less compensated in the culture um but uh, that one could be could be done same day and then there's different obviously costs associated with each one of those if we were to culture it and, and concentration we tend to get you know, one, two, three million stem cells if we're culturing it um, if we're not you know doing that opposed drive once we might get it's hard, they're hard to quantify, but, you know, 150, two, 300,000, you know, half a million. Some advocate we might get a little bit higher, but we might be more used to slurry of, of cells uh, with those. Um, wow. So, sorry, that was a long-winded answer. No, it's okay. Your, your question about uh, <laughs> can we use uh, other other horses' own blood? We can uh, for some things. Uh, more risk of rejection, I guess, a little bit, or flares, but there is some really good commercial stem cell, I would say more type products on the market right. that uh, um, that we can use horse side that, that are not from your own horse, you know, but, but more, you know, uh, um, less reactive, I guess, than, than some of the ones that we would just pull from another horse, you mm-hmm. get the clinic and then put into your horse and they've been tested and, and trialed and, and some of those work quite well. Okay. And, then, and sometimes advantageous, I guess that's another thing about stem cells is that the you know, potential downside with say culturing stem cells is there's a delay in treatment. So say, okay, we want those million, two hundred million cells. Um, so we're gonna pull some stem, pull some bone marrow, we're gonna send it off to be cultured, but that you know it's gonna be two to four weeks probably minimum oh. before we get that product back. Yeah. So there's a delay in that. So sometimes like an allergenic type uh uh, stem cell from another horse, we might give, have it in our freezer, we can pull that Renovo out and inject that into your horse, you know, same day, so that's like one of the advantages is potentially of, of one of those types of uh, products. Right, yeah, so totally case-dependent as to, you know, what Absolutely. when you would use those. So one thing also that, um, or treatment option that is available isn't necessarily regenerative, but oftentimes is used in conjunction with regenerative therapies is shockwave. 
Um, so right. what can you tell us a bit about shockwave and then why is it that you would use shockwave in conjunction with the regeneratives? Sure. Yep. <clears throat> so we use our shockwave. I always tell people it's, it's, uh, shockwave was originally developed for lithotripsy in people, which is basically using a sound wave to break up bladder stones, kidney stones, you know, gallstones, uh, like that. And then in, it was originally in the human side of things. And then they realized, Hey, there's a, a therapeutic and, and, uh, kind of rehabilitation, uh, aspect of this treatment that there were you know, haven't tapped into yet. So then they started using it in tendon ligament injuries in people and uh, and seeing some benefit from that. So we talk about shockwave. It's not, a, I, was, I almost think there was a bad name to, to, to call it, but it's not a shock. So it's not an electrical shock. You know, you can, you can turn it down and put it on your hand and it's not going to, you know, people always, you know, they go, okay, what's going to feel like? And maybe it's like an elastic band snap, snap it against your hand at a, at a higher level. Yeah. Um, but we can turn it down and it's, and it's like, it's an acoustic wave, so it's a sound wave, you know, almost, you know, in essence, potentially like an earthquake going through the, the tissue, you know, and so mm-hmm. we're using a pressure wave, which is a sound wave, to go through the, the tissue and bombard the area of, of, of injury, you know, or, or sometimes, you know, I have muscle tightness, you know, uh, might be a buckshin in a racehorse or a suspensory injury or a, or a deep digital flexor tendon tear, and so we're bombarding that tissue with a sound wave Mm -hmm. Um, the goal of it i guess is on its own you know uh without using another regenerative therapy with it would be to you know upregulate uh growth factors within the body it does provide a little bit of anti-inflammatory effect also provides a little bit of analgesic effect you know again would increase um blood flow specific that area you know vessel formation, you know, potentially bone formation in that area, um, if need be. Um, and we will use a lot then combined with the platelet-rich plasma. So a lot of times we'll inject PRP, you know, into the horse and then uh, drop the dose of the number of sound waves we're using, but then stimulate that area and break apart those platelets with the shockwave and then usually do a follow-up in, in two or three weeks with that shockwave again to try and stimulate that that area. And again, if you think about a tender ligament as a, as a tight rope, with some blood flow, but not a lot, we're really trying to bombard that area and say, hey, wake up and, and get some more blood flow in here and then start healing. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, uh, it's amazing what all is coming about more so nowadays than yeah. even a few years ago. So it's, it's really cool. What kind of contraindications would you have towards regenerative therapies or are there any because you're using their own tissue? Right. So um, we talked a little bit about the autogenic versus allogenic. So if we yeah. are using tissue, other horse tissue, you know, that's a potential downside if they were going to, you know, reject um, something like that. So that might be a, a contraindication. Um, you know, um, you know, delay in treatment, I guess we talked about that too. Yeah. So some of those ones, if you're not able to do it, you know, immediately horse side, but sometimes you, there's nothing wrong with, you know, okay, we want to use the bone marrow drive stem cells and we're going to PRP it a couple of times, you know, while we wait for those stem right. cells. So you can use those, those in combination. Okay. Um, cost, you know, obviously, you know, typically, a, not always, but typically a traditional inject, joint injection, if you go back to joint injection more specifically, is going to cost less than a regenerative therapy just because we're, we're you know, we have uh, cost of kits and, you know, whether we're sending something off or processing it, so there's a little more time potentially involved. Um, and, um, input costs, you know, for some of those regenerative therapies. So yeah. typically cost for the consumer, for the, the owner, um, is going to be higher with, uh, with a, uh, a regenerative therapy, you know, maybe that delay in, in patient, uh, 
be able to treat the patient um, would be kind of main downsides, I would say, of, of potentially using you know organic therapy. Otherwise, I, I don't know that there's a there's a lot. Uh, I suppose a person could argue too: are they, you know, are they always necessary? You know, is my horse going to heal if I don't do anything? It's the same as if you know we use stem cells or PRP. So obviously, mm. they're not always cheap to treat those areas, and, and potentially we can, like we talked about early on, they may heal just just fine on their own, but we may not have. One is strong of heel. We may be more prone to injury. We may have more scar tissue. Potentially, you know, we may take longer, but not always. But really, again, we're looking for the longevity out of the heel. So we want to get that horse healed as close to normal as possible. I definitely think that uh, using some of these regenerative therapies is going to allow us to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's actually a really good point. Um, and so then. If you come across a horse at this point that you're feeling could benefit from some regenerative therapies or a traditional joint injection, um, just in talking about those contraindications that you you have uh, in regards to the time frame, um, costs, those sort of things, are you more prone to go towards then the regenerative as opposed to tra- traditional injections? Or when would you choose a traditional injection over regenerative therapies? That's a really good question, too. So, um, again, very case-dependent. So we still use a lot of traditional injections, and we use a lot of regenerative medicine. You know, I do like the regenerative medicine, but, you know, some of these horses, like we talked about earlier on, sometimes they just have simply some a little bit of synovitis, and we need to treat, treat that synovitis. You know, realistically, those horses are going to respond very well to, you know, low-dose of steroid, you know, chondroprotective media. It's good for the cartilage dose of steroid, anti-inflammatory, and some good quality HA within the joint, mm-hmm. and they're going to respond quite quickly. And maybe I didn't mention that either. So uh, as far as traditional versus regenerative, potentially, not always, the, the traditional injection is going to be a little bit uh, quicker react, you know, a quicker turnaround time. So if we use a little traditional injection, into a horse with synovitis, that horse is going to feel pretty good within a well, within a week to two weeks. You know, sometimes even quicker than that, and, and continue training in that in that time uh, frame. You know, or if we use something like IRAP, um, you know, or PRP, some of those horses you know may take a few more days to start to come around, or weeks, you know, to to come around. We may be treating different things, so okay. you know, some of those those horses simply with synovitis, I guess I'm more apt to just use a traditional injection, or maybe one with you know some more significant arthritis we'll say okay yeah let's just use a traditional injection and then there may come a point where hey, they're not quite responding like we used to so rather than bump the dose of steroid up we might say hey let's try some IRAP in this in this knee rather than you know just continues you know steroid and HA um you know or maybe we feel okay maybe now there's is that disease process develops and the horses can use ages maybe there's more cartilage involvement so you know let's go ahead and, and use some platelet plasma into that joint so you can generate that, some of that cartilage and, and uh, make that horse more comfortable. And you can always jump back and forth between the two. I would say we don't typically as much with that, but it is possible to do that too. Right. Yeah, no, awesome. Um, are there any other kind of therapies that are just starting to hit the performance industry that you are interested in adding to your practice or that you know about? I think, as I say, not that I wrap in... Uh, PRP stem cells, they've obviously been around, especially in the human world, a lot longer, but it just seems it's been even the last three to five years that it's really taken off. Is there anything else that's coming up that you are aware of? Right. Um, we do have, on our website, we just get that on there too. We also have a product called ProStride, um, 
you know, probably potentially used a little bit more in the U.S. and maybe more in the warm blood uh, side of things than some of the Western formats, but not always. So the, the pro drive is a horse side PRP IRAP combination. So it's actually it's play the plasma and uh, interleukin receptor and antagonistic protein combination. So mm-hmm. we inject that in, into uh, joints as well. So we do have that uh, at our practices as well. And it's horse side, so we can do it. You can haul in, do it the same day, and then inject that into. The, the horse probably not quite the concentration of the actual IRAP say if we just used IRAP and then just, um, we'd probably get a higher concentration of that interleukin protein um, with the IRAP and freeze it but this one allows us to do it horse side so that's a nice uh, option to have in some of these ones as, as well yeah. um, you know for doing that so that's a, uh, a key product it's probably been on the market for six or seven years but you know probably in Canada last year for a little bit more you know so we've added that to our our practice um there is some other injections too i guess uh newer on the market called polyacrylamide gels mm-hmm. so i'll describe those to people um rx and ultrax would be examples of those they're they're not a silicone but they're almost like a barrier so we inject them into the joint you know they'll attach the solely and they're they're not a gel but you know people will describe them as that they go on kind of an attached you know, to the lining of the joint, and, and some horses do very well um, with that. I have a couple um, older rope horses here at home that have bad knees, and will use different, you know, the IRAPs or some of the pro-trides or traditional injections, and they, they all help. Um, but, you know, these ones are, are later on, the ones we were certainly retired, the, and they seem to respond better to the, to the polyacrylamide gel injection than any of the other ones, you know, and then last longer for them. So oh, those have kind of been, been nicer products. I'm not one maybe you always jump to and not that we'll use it in every joint, uh, you know, kind of a little more joint specific potentially, but they're good products. They take a little bit longer to, to take effect, uh, you know, for injecting horse with a polyacrylamide gel. It's almost clockwork at that, you know, five week mark, you know, four to six week mark before it really kicks in. So it's not quite as instant, but a, a pretty good product, you know, that's newer on the market and, and, and has some duration, which I like too. So there's some of those ones that, okay, maybe we've used a traditional injection that went to IRAP. Now we're, what else do we do here? You know, in humans, they'd be given a knee replacement. It is a reasonable option that can get those horses quite comfortable um, at times. Oh, cool. Very cool. And there's, there's a few other ones kind of coming through the, the pipeline as far as some other regenerative things. You know, it's really, like you said, kind of exploded over the last four to five years too. So I think even over the next two or three years, you'll see even more regenerative type products on the market, you know, commercially available. Right. Yeah, that's it's interesting and it's uh, pretty exciting to be a part of it at this point. I think everything's changing so quickly. Yes, absolutely. So I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Um, just wondering, is there any other thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, on the spot here, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I think, like we talked about, I, I think uh, when we talked about you know regenerative therapies and and the team. I think the the keynote again is to, to try and build a good team um, for your horses. You know, yeah. to uh, have a team that works together. And and you know, personally myself, I'm never afraid of a second opinion or or you know someone questioning what I'm what I'm doing. You know, I don't get my feathers ruffled that that easily. You know, if I want to. You know, person we hadn't dealt with before, and you want me to call and talk to your head, I'm always open you know, to doing that thing. So I think it's important for people to have an open attitude, you know, to never quit learning. And, and you know, I can, you know, might be able to look at the horse with you sometime, Kim, and you can, can teach me something. And then likewise, too, you know, and so I'm like, oh, that's a good idea, Kim, and, and have good ideas. So I think, again, you know, have a good team that works on your horse that's willing to, 
to uh, take criticism and, and work with our team members, and, and hopefully at the end of the day that, that gets your horse uh, where you want it, and, and they're, again, back to their, their full genetic potential and, and have fun doing it. Exactly. Yeah, that is the key. The horse is always at the center. So, like you say, egos aside or, or you know, your own thoughts aside, everybody can learn from somebody else um, no matter what the circumstances, and, and it's the horse ultimately which is going to teach all of us for sure too. Oh, totally. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And if anybody is interested in having you um, contacting you and having you either take a look at their horse or just going over some other things, what's the best way just to check out the website and contact the office? Our website's uh, www.corvetteservices.com or you can try the office at 403 Perfect. Well, I'll have those up on our show notes as well so that um, people definitely can get a hold of you. Really appreciate you taking the time. Sounds great, Kim. I appreciate it. Enjoyed it. You have a great day. Thanks to Dr. Corbeil for his time today and helping us further understand what regenerative therapies are all about in the equine field. For further information on Corvette, or if you'd like to have Dr. Corbeil out to work with your horse or collaborate on a case you are working on, go to his website at corvetteservices.com. That's C-O-R-vetservices.com. The link will be in our show notes as well. And you can find them on Facebook and Instagram as well under the same name. So make sure and follow them there. If you are working in the equine industry as a professional, continuing education should be at the core of your business. It's how we evolve to become better at our craft and serve the horses to the best of our abilities. No matter what level you are at, never stop learning. Through the mentorship I have taken within Hand Equine Therapy, we have expanded her programs to include courses and mentorship options for everyone, available in person or online. The knowledge that Tina Watkins has brought to this industry by providing over 25 years of experience and continued growth comes through in each online course, collaboration, and demonstration. I highly recommend you look at the In Hand Equine Therapy platforms through their social media sites as well as their learning platform at inhandequinetherapy.podia.com. I'm very thankful that you have chosen to listen to the episode today, and I appreciate each rating and review you can give, which helps grow this podcast. Reach out to the social media pages to hear about what's coming up on the next episodes.